0: upcoming future events affect how we live now if you celebrate Christmas you'll be buying presents putting up decorations and starting to get food in if you're going on holiday you will prepare for it whether by saving up working overtime going on a diet or researching things to do when you get there A couple who are planning to get married will be making preparations not just for the big day itself but also for their life together. They'll be going to wedding fairs, uh, buying furniture and so on. Upcoming future events affect how we live now. If we have a big event in our calendar in the next few months uh, we'll not just start thinking about it and preparing for it the day before. And it should be the same for the Christian when it comes to the end of the world. Uh, that coming future event, uh, which as we've seen over the last few weeks, is certain, despite what the scoffers will say, that coming future event should affect how we live now. And that's Peter's point in these final verses of this letter. Uh, we've seen him touching this already in verse 11. Where he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since the the whole world, the, the elements is to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And in this final section, he emphasizes that point as he addresses how we should live in light of the end of the world. And so particularly in verse 14 he says Therefore beloved since you are waiting for these things be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And we need reminded tonight how we are to live in light of the end of the world. Because most people around us aren't doing so. Most people around us are living as if this world will go on forever. Forever. But we know that it won't. We know that one day it will be brought to an end at which point everyone who has ever lived will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And Peter's readers too were to live differently from those around them. Peter makes that contrast in verse 17 where he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you're not carried away and lose your own stability. In 2009, the Australian state of Victoria faced the worst bushfires in its history. On Black Saturday, 7th February 2009, 173 people lost their lives. Over three and a half thousand buildings were destroyed, most of them homes. In the rest of Australia life went on as normal as that day dawned but in the fire zone in Victoria they acted differently. People in Perth were lying on beaches, those in Sydney were enjoying a Saturday barbecue But those living in Victoria were throwing water over their houses. Uh, They were fleeing for safety. They were living completely different lives to their fellow citizens. Why? Because the fire was coming. And there is a fire coming on this world too. And so we need to live differently from our fellow citizens So what does living differently look like? Well first and foremost it means living with your trust in Jesus Christ. In verse 14 we're told to make sure that on the day the fire comes that we are found by him to be without spot or blemish. Our problem is that we all have spots and blemishes because of our sin. uh, And there's nothing we can do to get them off. The spots that chicken pox brings will eventually scab over and disappear. But there's nothing we can put on the spots of our sin to make it disappear. No amount of time will make our offences against the holy God disappear. And in fact every day we add to them. Every day we add more spots than what we woke up with. And so first and foremost, if we are to be found without spot or blemish, we must be found trusting in Christ. And we must frequently apply his blood to our sins. Because it is the only remedy, it is the only ointment that can take away those spots of sin. But in Christ those spots are gone to be without spot and blemishes who we are in Christ it's the uh, objective reality about our lives but it's also more and more what we are to become in practice these verses speak of the need for our initial salvation but they're also talking about how we're to live going forward how we're to be found uh, when the end comes uh, and then, essentially, do that both, both negatively and positively. Two sides of the coin as to how we're to live. Negatively, verse fourteen talks about putting sin to death. Uh, that language without spot and blemishes, sacrificial language, uh, and we are to offer up our lives as sacrifices to God. Paul talks uh, at the end of his life about being poured out as a drink offering. He says elsewhere in one of the verses we looked at from Romans 12, last Lord's Day morning. Romans 12 verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. By the Holy Spirit's help, we are to seek to put to death our besetting sins. And we're to try and become aware of our blind spots. Uh, the verse talks about spots but we have blind spots as well as obvious ones Uh, we have spots that other people can see that we can't Uh, but if our goal is to be found by him on that day without spot or blemish then not just the obvious spots but the blind spots also need addressed so one, one side of the coin is putting sin to death But maybe we shouldn't even call this the negative side because it's not just about not doing things. It's about actively seeking by the Spirit's help to look to Jesus to become more like him. What do you think of when you hear a phrase like putting sin to death? Or the older phrase for it, which is the mortification of sin well, we can easily think about it being what we do by our own efforts. That Jesus has saved us, but then it's left us to us to, 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 to put our sin to death. Or, or even if we think of it as something that we do with the Holy Spirit's help, we can still think of it as just about looking inward about trying to see what's wrong and changing it. But actually, if we just look inward, we miss the help that we need because the very help that we need to put sin to death comes from looking outside of ourselves. It comes from looking to Jesus. John Owen finishes his classic book in the mortification of sin on putting sin to death by urging us to look to Jesus. He says by faith ponder think about that you are in no way able to conquer your sin and that you're weary of fighting it and though you're ready to faint there is enough in Jesus Christ to give you relief and after all is that not what helped the prodigal son when he was at his wits end he was in despair but he knew there was enough bread in his father's house to keep him alive And that's what will keep us going in the Christian life. Knowing that there's enough bread in our Father's house to help keep us fighting sin and to help keep us going as Christians. Another Puritan asked the question, are you afflicted with the remainders of lust and corruptions? Still look to Jesus. No list is so strong but he can easily mortify it. His death has a killing power against sin. So apply the blood of Jesus to the spots of past sins and to your struggles with current sins. It's the only ointment that will work. Apply the blood of Jesus to your sins. Don't try and struggle on in your battle with sin without looking to Jesus. And so one side of the coin is putting sin to death. But the other side of the coin, in what we're to be doing, uh, in light of the end of the world, verse 18 is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Some coming future events can leave us in a bit of a panic. I'm going on holiday in the morning and I'm not packed. It's Christmas in less than a month and there's so much to do. But Peter at the end of verse 17 doesn't want us to lose our stability. Do not lose your own stability. And that has been a concern from the first chapter of this letter. I know it seems a while ago now but if you look back to chapter 1 verse 5 you'll see a list of things we're to supplement our faith with. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection and love. So godliness is mentioned in verse 5. It's mentioned again in verse 11 here of chapter 3. And then uh, chapter 1 verse 10. Peter says, if you practice these qualities you will never fall So Peter in the first chapter is wanting to make sure we don't fall and in the final chapter he's wanting to make sure that we don't lose our stability. Uh, So it's the same concern that we wouldn't be blown over. And how how are we to do that? Well verse 18, by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. The one who embodied virtue, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection and love in a way never seen before or since. We've had a lot of wind over the last few days and if there are trees that are dead, if there are trees that have stopped growing, those will be the trees in greatest danger of being blown down in the storm. And it's the same with the Christian. However long you've been a Christian, this command tells you that there is still scope for you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That this is still a command for you. And that no matter how long you may have been a Christian for, the moment you stop growing, you're in danger. The world, the flesh and the devil are arrayed against us. We are rowing against the wind. And if we stop rowing, it will be hard to start again. If we stop rowing, we'll be blown backwards. So we need to keep going forwards. Rowing in the strength God supplies and with the Holy Spirit filling our sail. To stop going forwards in the Christian life is to start to go backwards. Uh, we can't put our Christian life on hold. Uh, some of the, the the subscriptions that we get, maybe your your Netflix subscription or something like that, you can you can put it on hold. Uh, you can you can have a holiday for for a few months uh, where where you, you don't pay anything, but but you don't you don't lose what you have or your your audiobook subscription. But we can't put our Christian life on pause, or or we'll we'll go backwards and if we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus then we'll need our bibles in our hands and we'll need our bottoms sitting on a pew or on a seat in church below a pulpit where the bible is opened because the knowledge of the lord jesus christ in which we are to grow is a supernatural knowledge there are things about god that you don't need the bible to tell you about Many things about God can be read in the the book of nature. Uh, Paul tells us that in Romans 1. Uh, He says God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. There are things about God you can learn without the Bible. But the gospel that God manifest in the flesh would give us life for his people... That is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, and it would have remained hidden but for supernatural revelation and so if the knowledge of Christ is a supernatural knowledge, if a knowledge if it 's a knowledge that we can 't come to in and of ourselves we 're not going to grow in that knowledge without the Bible, even if Some bits of the Bible are hard to understand, as verse 16 tells us. Verse 16 is really significant, by the way. For a start, Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level as the other scriptures. That is the Old Testament scriptures. So that tells us that this first generation of Christians recognised Paul's writings as scripture. It wasn't a belief that developed among later generations of Christians. The writings of Paul and the other New Testament authors were recognised as Scripture from the very beginning. The other thing this verse tells us is that some things in Paul's writings, just like some things in the rest of the Scriptures, are hard to understand. there are some christians who don't like any uncertainty Uh, maybe you've met them Uh, there are those for whom there can be no gray areas everything has to be black and white and certainly in the fundamentals of our faith we, we don't have any uncertainty at all but there are other areas where we have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty Where, if we long for absolute certainty at every minute point, we will be disappointed. And when it comes to the Bible, there are three areas where we are sometimes left with a small amount of uncertainty. Not by accident or mistake, but because this is how God has planned it. The three areas and people might argue about one and say well we need certainty there but if you get the two there's there'll be uncertainty in something else and if you get the three that there's still uncertainty the first uh, where God has left us a little element of uncertainty is in regard to to some occasional parts of the original text of the bible the books of the bible were written out by hand and then copied And copied and copied and copied and copied and God could have arranged things so that no one who ever made a copy of a biblical book ever made a mistake God could have arranged things so that no scribe copying out a book of the Bible no scribe ever spelt something wrong or, or, or no scribe's eyes ever skipped over one word to, to the next word or, or they wrote a similar sounding word in, in, instead of one but, but God didn't do that and we know that because no biblical manuscript of any significant length that we have exactly matches with another. Now the sceptic will take that and say Well, look, it's just like a game of Chinese whispers. How can we know what the apostles originally wrote? But in fact, we have an abundance of of biblical manuscripts. Uh, With the New Testament, we have over 5,000 such manuscripts which contain at least part of the New Testament. And that doesn't include thousands and thousands translated into other languages. Uh, There was no uh, central report repository for the New Testament from the very beginning the, the 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 gospel was going to the nations, the Bible was being taken out and translated into different languages. There is no opportunity for someone to, to come in and control all the copies and corrupt it. And the more copies of the Bible there are, the easier it is to spot when one copyist has made a mistake. And yet there is still the odd word or occasional verse that we're not sure about. So for example, if you look at, at the gospel of Luke chapter 17 in the church Bibles. Luke chapter 17. And if you try and find verse 36, you'll struggle. Because Luke 17 in our church Bibles goes from verse 35 to verse 37. So, so what happened in verse 36? Has somebody stolen it out of our Bibles? We'll, we'll know for a start verse numbers are, are a are a relatively recent invention uh they're only invented in 1555 uh, as well as that if you've looked 17 open there, there's little footnote after verse 35 uh point you down to the bottom of the page uh and it says some manuscripts add verse 36 two men will be left in the field one taken and the other left uh yeah, uh, so footnote d- down at the bottom at the end of verse 35. Uh, and as well as that, if you were to look at the same verse in the King James Version, uh, you'll be able to find Luke seventeen thirty-six. But it is a little note too uh, in the margin where it says that this verse is wanting, uh, which means missing or absent in most of the Greek copies. Now if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's, it's in our Bibles. It's in Matthew twenty-four forty. So there's, there's no doubt that, it, that it's in our Bibles. It's in Matthew. But if it's not in most of the Greek manuscripts of Luke, but it is in Matthew, the most likely explanation, not the only explanation, the most likely explanation is that someone copying Luke's version, but who knew Matthew's version off by heart, accidentally added those familiar words. But even 400 plus years ago, there was uncertainty about whether the verse was original or not. The King James translators, they they knew that and they wanted to alert their readers to it. Uh, They left the verse in but they included a note whereas modern versions tend to leave it out but include a note Uh, because in the last 400 years more manuscripts and older manuscripts have been discovered which also don't have the verse And there are other places where similar things have happened, but it's harder to decide whether certain words should be in or out. But it doesn't affect any doctrine. These uncertainties are so far from accepting the fundamentals of the faith that they don't even affect any minor doctrine. Uh, to quote James Bannerman who was an early free church minister he said God didn't promise to miraculously protect the inspired manuscripts from the unintentional error, errors of copyists who would come later but at the same time as Bannerman goes on to say to all practical intents and purposes we have a copy of the original text as it was when the biblical authors first wrote it through all practical intents and purposes we have the bible directly as it came from the original authors just as before the invention of the printing press uh, people who had bibles that were hand copied you put them together none of them are going to match perfectly there are going to be blemishes here and there because that's what human copying something does but whether we like it or not God has left us with some minor uncertainty about occasional parts of the text of the Bible. But even if he hadn't, even if he hadn't, the next level of minor uncertainty that we have to deal with comes with, with translation. Especially if there's a word in one of the original languages that only occurs once in the Bible. and uh, um, We can't look at, at where it's used elsewhere uh, for, for, to, to help understand it. And again, the King James translators, they knew this, they pointed it out. They wrote a brilliant introduction called From the Translators to the Readers, which sadly is hardly ever included in King James Bibles today. But in their introduction, they basically held up their hands and said, look, there are some words here that we're not sure about, whether that's words that only occur once, or whether it's the names of certain birds and beasts and precious stones. And then they quoted St Augustine who said, It is better to make doubt of those things that are secret than to strive about those that are uncertain. Now again, in the last 400 years there have been discoveries of other documents in the original languages that give us other examples of how some of those words were used. But still there are places where we're not quite sure even this morning, if, if you go back to, to the verse we looked at, Romans 12 and verse 10, that phrase about our, our responsibility to treat one another with honour, different Bibles will translate it slightly differently. There's not an issue in terms of the original text. There's no doubt about that. But just exactly how it should be translated, uh, we're not completely sure. Uh, so, some versions go one way, some go another. But the point not even the point of the whole verse, the point even of the phrase is clear that we are to honour one another. So even if there was no uncertainty about the original text, and there's a tiny, tiny bit, but even if there was none, there would be occasional uncertainty about how to translate it. But even if there's no uncertainty about either of those things, even if there's no uncertainty about the the text, no uncertainty about how to translate it, there would still be occasional uncertainty about how to translate it. And once again, the vast majority of the Bible is absolutely clear. Uh, Our problem uh, most of the time is not that we don't understand the Bible, but that we do understand the Bible. Uh, This doctrine is known as the perspicuity of Scripture. And uh, perspicuity just means clarity uh, I assume that's where the word perspex comes from uh, um, the definition of perspex is that it's transparent you can see through it it's not cloudy it's designed to let you see things not to stop you seeing things uh, and so contrary to Roman Catholicism which has tried to keep the Bible out of people's hands or, or made people think that they need their priests to interpret it for them. Protestantism has given people the Bible and said go and read it because we believe the Bible is clear. It's perspex, it's not wood. But still there are parts that are hard to understand. And our confession of faith gets a balance beautifully when it says all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another that not only the educated but also the uneducated in a due use of the ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them so some some things are not equally clear but everything necessary to be known and believed for salvation is crystal clear it's unbelievably clear but there are some parts that are hard to understand hard doesn't mean impossible but not straightforward And, and so beware The person who comes to the passage that people have wrestled with down through the ages and still have been left a bit uncertain by. Beware of the person who comes to that passage and says, This is all absolutely clear. There is no doubt about any of it. My interpretation is the only valid one. Anyone who doesn't agree with me just isn't spiritual enough. God in his wisdom has left us with a certain level of uncertainty. In terms of text in terms of translation and in terms of interpretation what we need to know is absolutely clear but he's left us with just a little bit of uncertainty in these areas Uh, we might wish that he hadn't but he has and i don't think you need me to tell you that when it comes to interpretation as you read the bible you will find some bits easier to understand than others. If you're coming to the end of a Bible reading plan as we we finish out, out the year, some bits will have been fairly plain sailing. Other bits will have been a bit more of a struggle. And one reason for that is surely to make us rely on the Holy Spirit. That we might look to him to help us understand the words he breathed out that we wouldn't just casually open our Bibles and think well I know all this, I can understand it all in my own strength. Some take the heart to understand parts of the Bible and twist them to their own destruction as Peter says here in verse 16 but for the true believer the uncertain parts will lead to humility rather than pride. So growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ it means keeping the Bible central even though some bits of it are hard to understand because we can't grow in our knowledge of him without it. But obviously it's not just an intellectual knowledge. Yes we're to grow in our knowledge of Christ's person and work but it should never just be a knowledge about him but a knowledge of him. For those of you who are going along on Thursday nights, uh, you'll soon be getting to questions in the Shorter Catechism, like what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? And it will be a tremendous comfort for your Christian life if you not only know in your head that Jesus is your prophet, priest and king, but if you know how that impacts your life. And if you're able to pray to him as your prophet, priest and king, knowing something of what that means, this call to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it it requires a certain amount of effort, but it is a glorious thing. It's a call to more and more understand who we are in Christ. And as we do that, our lives will change. And more and more it will be the cry of our heart as Peter ends this letter, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so that's the letter of 2 Peter. Eschatology must affect ethics. The end of the world must affect how we live now. And despite what those around us are doing, our role is not to panic but to remain stable and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And so we say with Peter, in words which tonight are even more deeply the cry of his heart than when he wrote them in this letter, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, it seems fitting having ended the book. And having been thinking about the end of the world, that we would close by singing the psalm that comes at the end of the Psalter. Uh, The very final page of our psalm books, page 366, Psalm 150b. Uh, The tune will be 260. Uh, That just as Peter's final letter ends with this great crescendo of praise, so does the Psalter, because this is where all of human history is heading. And to be on the wrong side of history is is to be heading in any other direction than this. So tune 260, uh, which uh, I think goes to the hymn, All the Way My Saviour Leads Me, Psalm 150b, I will stand and sing praise.